The 32nd Psalm is our text today, Psalm 32. A Psalm of David, a Maskeel. A Maskeel is a psalm that is uh, didactic, it teaches, it's a lesson. And the lesson is on forgiveness. The experience of removal of guilt. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted through groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. There is a story told about an interesting prank that the famous playwright Noel Coward pulled a long time ago. He sent this um, identical note to 20 of the most famous men in London, and the anonymous note read, we have all find out, we have all found out what you're doing. If I were you, I would get out of town. The story goes that all 20 men left town. <laughs> what would happen if tomorrow you got a little note in the mail that, that read, we know your secret, or somebody came down your dorm hall and slipped under the door of your, to your room one night a little note that read, we all know what you're doing. That'll cause a little fright. My professor of preaching, Dr. Kleinert at seminary, told about the time when he was pastor of the First Baptist Church in Huntsville. It was back when you had to dial the operator and she hooked you in, you know, to the to the person you were calling, you know, way back before there was direct dialing. He said one Saturday afternoon he, he was calling somebody, so he dialed the operator, and she inadvertently plugged him in on the conversation of two women in his church. And he said, 
before I realized, yeah, before he realized, yeah, <laughs> before I realized what was happening, he said, I, I recognized the, the voice, voices of those two women. They were both members of my church. And he said, I recognized the name, the other person they were talking about. He said they were literally, verbally doing a dissection on this lady. I mean, he said they cut her to pieces. Well, he said, I just listened in. Innocent, listening in. Well, he said next morning on Sunday morning, he got up and he said, now something strange happened to me yesterday. He said, I was make, calling somebody and he said, I got uh, plugged in to a conversation of two ladies that were talking yesterday about a, another member of this church. And he said, I could tell by the looks on the faces of the people who were listening to me that there had been more than two women who had, <laughs> who, who had been in on a conversation like that. Well, that happened to me this week. I was calling somebody with my touch-tone phone, and, and while I was on hold waiting for that person to answer, I heard some people in this congregation talking you know, on, you know, about somebody else. Oh, not really, but I scared you, didn't I? I gave you a little fright there. What, what happens when you look in your rearview mirror and you see that cop coming up behind you? I'll tell you exactly what happens. First thing you do, you let off on the accelerator, just automatic. Your, your foot just comes back like this. And the second thing you do is that you begin to immediately try to think up of some excuse. I, I was on my way to the hospital to visit a dying aunt, you know, that kind of stuff. We're all plagued by this heavy weight of, of guilt we carry around. Now I'm not talking about this real and biblical conviction that, that causes us to understand that we're sinners and leads us to repentance. I'm talking about this inner condemnation and self-accusation, this, this stuff that comes from who knows where, that dogs our steps every day of our life and causes us to be miserable all the time. There's some people who feel guilty because they've never married. There's some people guilty because they have. There's some folks who feel guilty because they've done a jo poor job of parenting. And there's some who feel guilty because they don't have children. There's some people who feel guilty because of the great burden of care that other people have to extend toward them. They feel like an imposition. And some feel guilty because they don't care enough for other folks. And so we work harder and we feel guilty because we don't spend more time with our families. And so we take time off and try to relax and we feel guilty because we're not working. And some of us feel guilty because we have bills we can't pay, calls that we haven't returned, books that we've not read. And I know some folks, true story, they feel guilty because they don't feel guilty. Now how do you get rid of this draining guilt that plagues all of us? Well, I've got good news for you. David was able to experience the removal of guilt. If there ever was somebody who deserved to feel guilty, it was this man. He was guilty of the, the sins of murder and adultery. His sins were immense. He was guilty of the big two. And there are many scholars who believe that Psalm 32 was written as he cried out in confession for what he calls in this passage, my sin. He's talking about that sin of murder and adultery. 
And there are many who believe that Psalm 51 is a twin to Psalm 32. And this man, under the burden of that guilt, cried out. And the good news is, is that he experienced removal of guilt. How does it happen? Well, first of all, we must concede our wrong. That is, admit it. Listen to me. He who does not admit his wrong sentences himself to a dungeon. We've all been intrigued by the number of politicians and religious leaders and entrepreneurs and business professionals who have fallen in the last few years. It's intriguing to notice or watch, observe how they deal with that wrong. Some of them just kind of sidestep it, you know. Some of them blame others or circumstances. Sometimes blinded by their own self-righteousness, they kind of shrug it off as though everybody was doing. It's no big deal. I was, I was observing this week as they questioned this lady who was appointed as Attorney General and listened to some people who supported that appointment even to the last. And I heard many of them say that law that she broke was an antiquated, out-of-date law. Everybody breaks it. It's no big deal. And sometimes we just kind of brush it off and, 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 uh, and act like it's nothing. But until a person admits his wrong, there will never be any recovery. Now, it's interesting to observe how many support groups today are going back to the traditions of a, the Alcoholic Anonymous group, AA. You know those traditions. A man stands up before a meeting and says, I'm Sam Jones, I'm an alcoholic. I drank my last drink on July the 6th, 1986. Bill Wilson, one of the founders of AA, describes some of the things they, some of the uh, principles of AA. He says, first of all, we, we admit that we're, our lives are powerless over alcohol and out of control. We take a fearless, searching inventory of our lives and we admit to ourselves, to God and to one other human being, the exact nature of our wrong. I went to one of their meetings. I was pastor in Faith Baptist Church in Iowa Park and one of my members was an alcoholic, member of AA. He invited me one night to go to one of their special meetings and I, I sensed as I walked into that place a special bonding of, of those people. It would, if we were in church, I would call it fellowship, you know. And this guy got up, first guy got up, he said, I'm an alcoholic. I am so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. I had my last drink, told exactly where it was and when it was. Just went on and like that, over and over again. I started to walk into this pulpit this morning and say to you, Hello, I'm Gerald Tidwell, and I'm a sinner. And I've got to admit to you that there are many times when my life is totally out of sync. Now this admission must embrace three dimensions. Did you notice the three words he used in the text again and again? Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And have you seen those words together over and over again in the Bible? Of course you have. And you've asked yourself, why are these words together? They're the same. Or don't they mean the same thing? Transgression, sin, iniquity? What's the difference? Well, there is a difference. They touch three dimensions. Transgression is the Godward dimension. What he's saying is, I'm rebelled against God. I've mutinized against God. He's saying, I've rebelled against the government of my life. That's what this word transgression means. 
He didn't start out saying, first of all, I've not come up to certain standards in my life I've set for myself. He didn't say, I've violated the trust of another human being. He said, first of all, he just looked at the throne of God and said, I admit I've rebelled against you and your government. The word sin there means to miss the mark. It means to have the aim deflected. It means to fail to come up to certain daily standards we set for ourselves. I have an idea that David was reflecting on his past, a shepherd boy. He'd just lie on his back, you know, he he was so innocent, just a young lad, writing poetry to God, singing songs to God. His aim in life was to continue to do that. He never, ever, ever thought that one day he would, his life would be so marred. That's not what he set out to do. He never ever dreamed that one day he'd break the heart of God and violate the trust of a friend. His aim had been deflected. Last Sunday off the coast of Iraq, our ships let loose these cruise missiles headed toward a certain target in the interior of Iraq. Always accurate to the target. Somewhere along the way, as those missiles were headed toward their target, they were di- one of them was, was hit by some anti-aircraft missile and was deflected from the target. And it went over here and it plowed into the El Rashid Hotel wreaking havoc. What David is saying is this, when I was a 16-year-old boy tending sheep, the aim of my life was just to praise and glorify God. But somehow along the way, the aim of my life became deflected and the devastation it inflicted is immense. I admit it. The word iniquity there means touches the level of being. He's saying that there's something inside my being that's twisted and crooked. It has to be straightened out by God Himself. It's like a picture hanging on a wall that's not square. It drives my wife crazy. It could be off one thousandth of one percent. And she wouldn't be able to sleep at night till that baby was square. She has the eye of an eagle with regard to a level picture on a wall. What David is saying is this. He's saying, there's something on the inside of me that's not square with God. I admit it. And I'm depending on the grace of God to come inside my life somewhere and straighten that baby out. You concede. Second, you confront your guilt, your wrong. Now there's a difference between conceding passively our guilt and confronting it head on. There's a difference. There's a difference between saying, I admit I'm a sinner, the last time I sinned, etc. The word conf- confront means that I face it head on aggressively. Hear me now. If you do not name your sin and face it head on, there'll never be any change occur. As a matter of fact, until we deal with our sin, it will deal with us. And it deals with us in three areas of life. It deals with us in the conscience. Now in the King James, David says that my body wasted away through my groaning all day. In the King James, it has this, it has through the roaring all day. Now when old David would lie down on his back and tend those sheep, man, that must have been a peaceful thing. I mean, he, 
oh, you know, hear birds sing, sheep bleat, everything's peaceful and quiet. All of a sudden, sometimes, occasionally, there'd come that roar of a wild beast, and immediately terror would spread across his mind and consciousness, and the sheep would scatter, and this roar would cause immediate panic and anxiety, for he knew that some animal was lurking to bounce, to pounce upon its prey, some lion. What David is saying is this, I have this unresolved guilt in my life. Every morning when I wake up, I hear its growl. And I sit down with my friends at lunch. We're in happy conversation. All of a sudden I hear the roar of it. I can't get away. I shut my ears to it, but I still hear it. When I lie down at night to try to sleep, it's growling and, grow and, 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 and roaring, and I can't sleep. And I wake up in the night when I can sleep, and it's there growling and growling and, and pounce, ready to pounce on me, roaring. It's, 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 I can't escape it. If we don't deal with our sins, it deals with us in the conscience. Apart from the Bible, nobody deals with the guilt of sin like Shakespeare. He calls the guilty mind full of scorpions. There is Brutus after he slays, after he kills, murders Caesar, seeing Caesar's ghost night and day. There's Lady Macbeth trying to wash that blood off her hands, screaming out down spot. And there's Macbeth seeing daggers floating around in the sky. Sarah was rich. When her father died, he left her $20 million and an estate that brought her $1,000 a day. That's a lot of money. I mean, with a cash flow like $1,000 a day. I could probably send my daughter to Baylor one semester, at least. $1,000 a day. She was rich. She was famous. Nobody ever invited anybody to a party unless they invited her. She was on every invitation list. She was the belle of the ball in New Haven, Connecticut. She was so rich and so powerful, her wealth could open any door in America, and politicians clamored for her support, and colleges begged for her endowment. She was rich, well-known, powerful, and miserable. Her little daughter died when her daughter was five weeks old. Her husband soon died. Then, her, then, she, then she was left alone with her name, her money, her memories, and her guilt. It was her guilt that caused her to move out west. She, it was a passion for penance that drove her to San Jose, California. Her yesterdays imprisoned her today, and she yearned for freedom. When she got to San Jose, California, she, brought, she bought an eight-room farmhouse plus 160 adjoining acres. She hired 16 carpenters and put them to work, and they worked every day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, for 38 years building her mansion. Listen to how Lucado describes it. Observers were intrigued by the project. Sarah's instructions were more than eccentric, they were eerie. The design had a macabre touch. Every window was to have 13 panes, each wall 13 panels, each closet 13 hooks, each chandelier 13 globes. The floor plan was ghoulish, corridors snaking randomly, some leading nowhere. One door opened to a blank wall, another to a 50-foot drop. 
One set of stairs led to a ceiling, had no door, trap doors, secret passageways, tunnels. There was no retirement, this was no retirement home for Sarah's future. It was a castle for her past. The making of this mysterious mansion only ended when Sarah died. The completed estate sprawled over six acres, had 16 kitchens, had 13 bathrooms, 40 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 52 skylights, 467 doors, 10,000 windows, 160 rooms, and a bell tower. Now what in the world does she need that much space for? She lived alone, didn't she? Well, kind of. For every night, exactly at midnight, a servant went up in the bell tower and rang the bell and phantoms came. And these ghosts came in and she ushered them into the blue room and she entertained them for two hours. Exactly at two o'clock, the same servant went up, rang the bell, and they disappeared. And she went to bed. She did it night after night. Who were these phantoms? Well, they were the ghosts of the soldiers and the pioneers and the, and the Indians that were killed by the bullets of the Winchester rifle, the most powerful and popular rifle of Sarah's day. For what brought Sarah Winchester, her fortune, brought death to these people and confined her to live for the rest of her life trying to get over her guilt. If you don't deal with it, it'll deal with you. It'll deal with you spiritually. It drives a wedge between man and God so he can't pray. One day my professor came in the seminary room and read a letter by a preacher in, in Florida. The preacher said, when I was in the seminary, I lied. He said, I didn't read all the books I said I read. I didn't read all the pages I turned in I read. And I didn't do all the assignments that you left it up to us. And he said, I haven't been able to pray or preach since. And my professor said, I get letters like this every week of people who have unresolved guilt and it's driven a wedge between them and God and they can't get past it. It'll deal with you physically. David said, I burn, I'm burning up with fever. He said, I, my body is wasting away. He said, it's like my bones are breaking. Paul Turnier said that most people who come to me for care are not people who have real physical problems. People who have the pain of unresolved guilt that affects them physically. Now let me ask you this. Not long ago a group of doctors were polled. How many of these, how many would you say these doctors as they returned, how many of you would think that they said that the number of people who came to them really didn't have physical problems. They had problems of unresolved guilt that, that, that affected them physically. How many would you say? One out of ten? One out of five? One out of three? How about two out of three? Unless we deal with our guilt unresolved, deals with us physically. It does deal with us physically and spiritually and in the conscience. Confront, third, Confess. About this confession he's talking about. First of all, it's confession that's, that leads to repentance. It's, it's feeling the same way toward your wrong, your guilt, your, your sin as God does to the point of repentance. 
Donald Gray Barnhouse said that he was talking to a group of young people one time. Let me see what you'd answer. He said, how many of you know what the meaning of repentance is? One boy lifted up his hand. He said, I know what the meaning of repentance is. It means being sorry for your sin. Just about that time, a little girl's hand shot up. She said, please, it's being sorry enough for your sin to never do it again. That's it. This confession involves repentance that says, this time, this is it, no more. I repent of it. It's continuous. The word, the word, if we confess our sin, is in the linear action. It means that there is a continual. And I'm not talking about this morbid introspection that goes around saying, I'm a terrible person. I'm talking about this, this sensitivity that we develop to sin. It's keeping our sin so fessed up to God, so to speak, so up to date that we develop a sensitivity to our sin so that when we sin, it pierces our heart. Oh, don't you want to be there again? The closest I ever was to the Lord, I remember sitting in services where laymen would give their testimony and there'd be immediate tear in my eye, pierced to the heart. The closer you get to God, the more you're like the saint who can't stand one single sin. It's a complete confession. No more of this, if I've done anything wrong, I want you to forgive me. None of that stuff. It's naming it specifically. I heard about the guy who wrote the IRS. That name will strike a note of terror. <laughs> he wrote the IRS. And he sent a check for $100. He said, I've cheated the IRS, and I'm sorry, and I feel terrible about it. So I'm sending you a check for $100. If that doesn't help me feel better, I'll send you the rest later. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about specific naming the sin specifically. I got up this morning... I was insensitive to my wife, my spouse. I'm sorry and I repent. I was cruel to my children. I was hate, hateful and hurtful and sharp. I did and I'm sorry and I repent. I went to work today and I cheated on the hours of my work. I sat around longer than the coffee break really allows me to have. I, I'm sorry, I, I repent so that I live in a constant sensitivity to the wrong. It's confident confession. If we confess our sins, we have the confidence that He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. It's gone forever. That leads me to the last point. When that has happened, forget it. I'm here to give you good news. You can forget your sin. And, be, and it be obliterated. We've all seen how David describes it. He said, my transgressions have been forgiven. My sin is covered. My iniquity he doesn't hold against me. This God who paints, who, who covers the sky blue in the daytime and in inky darkness at night, covers the meadows with flowers in the spring and with a blanket of snow in the winter, this same God 
covers my sin. He doesn't hold it against me. He's not written it down anywhere. Oh, hallelujah. He doesn't he hadn't written it down anywhere. So that one day he takes his finger and he goes through the book and says, Aha! Don't you remember back there? Don't you remember this? He hadn't written it down anywhere. I was cutting up with my class this morning, as I want to do. And I talked to them about, you know, that I remember the way they treated me today, you know, just, just for fun. They, and one guy said, you don't, keep, <laughs> you don't keep it in a book anywhere, do you? He literally didn't know I was going to talk about this. Aren't you glad he doesn't write it down? You ought to be doing high fives with one another. Don't you wish that were true of other people? They'd forget it and not write it down. Don't, when you sin, watch this. When you confess your sin to God, as we just talked about, he, he, he obliterates it, forgets it. He doesn't write it down, never brings it up again. So watch your, if you feel this self-incrimination and self-condemnation, it's not of God because he never brings it up again. Other people do, not him. And I read about this preacher who was writing a book, true story. Had his lap computer writing this book, and there was a power failure. He had about three chapters already written, and he had, there was this power failure, and it just disappeared. He, he punched every button he f- could find on that computer to get it back. It was gone. He went down to the computer store. He said, what happened to my book? He said, it's gone. He said, where'd it go? He said, nowhere. And the guy said, well, can I ever get it back? And the computer man said, never. It's like that. When I've dealt with my sin, it's gone forever. Can I get it back? Never. Now, in a kind of an addendum, in order to really be truly capable of ridding your life of guilt, you need to hold on to the promise of 1 John 1, 20 and 21. Listen to it. These things I have written that you sin not, I've written this so you'll never sin again. But if anyone should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, I've written this so you won't sin, but since you're going to, you need to understand this. You have an advocate that is a heavenly lawyer, a witness in your defense. You have a heavenly father, a lawyer who stands on a face-to-face relationship with God. It's the exact Greek thought. It means on an equal standing with God, eye to eye. You have a face-to-face advocate with God, Jesus Christ the righteous. So that my salvation is guaranteed the fact, by, by the fact that this very moment my heavenly lawyer pleads my case before God. And he doesn't plead my innocency. He pleads his wounds. And he says to the Father, Father, it is true what he's done, but I plead in his behalf on the basis of these scars. And therefore, you can experience the removal of guilt. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation hymn. 
The invitation is threefold. Would you hear me now? I invite you first, those of you who have never come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've sinned against God. And your sin is unforgivable. The only way that sin of rebelling against God can be forgiven is through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's nothing you can ever do to absolve it. And if you reject Jesus Christ, you, you can't be saved. You can only be forgiven of that sin by trusting in Jesus Christ and having Him, by His blood, remove it. If you've never placed your faith in Christ this morning, you're not saved. You're lost. You may join a church. You may get baptized ten times. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, confessed your sin to Him, trusted Him to be your Savior, counted on Him and Him alone, you cannot be saved. I want to ask you this morning, those of you who feel God leading you to join a church, this is, you feel God leading you to this church. Why wait another day? Maybe you're a college student and you're going back home. Well, while you're here, have a family, a home to give witness to that you're a member. Or maybe you need to come this morning because you want to recommit your life to Christ. We're not going to ask you to get up and hang all the stuff out to dry, to reflect and reveal. Just to come to say, I want to publicly rededicate myself to Jesus Christ. While we stand for prayer, after our prayer, we'll sing. We invite you to come. Would you stand with me? Our Father, I pray now, dear God, that this invitation would draw people to a decision that would be the removal of every guilt covering of that guilt. And I pray that people be saved now, wherever they are to hear my voice on television, wherever that be, that people would confess Jesus as their personal Savior and invite Him to be their Lord. And God, I pray for those here in this place who are not saved to come trusting Christ or to rededicate themselves to God or to join this church. Father, have your way in this service, this invitation, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Now in the spirit of prayer, as our choir leads us in song, we invite you to come. Come out on the first word.